0: Discontent is the luxury of the well-to-do. You gotta live here, and you might as well like it. Why well, don't you like Crawford? Yeah. Joe? The touch of his hairy hand, French. I'm a fool with it, the aggressive hospitality, the
1: arrogance of stupid people insist you should be as
0: stupid as they are. It's death to farm out here. It's worse than death in the mind. Do
2: you want them to sing opera as well? Welcome to part two of our Wake and Fright episode. But before we go into real talk, it's time for PP, our patron pitch. This is where we let our patrons know what they can expect on their exclusive patron feed. And we also let non-patrons know what they're missing out on. Uh, closing down september here alex and uh as we're heading into the halloween month we have uh, the third installment on the twilight franchise we're we're doing quick video reviews for those Mm -hmm. alex and i are are doing a video each separately uh, and then i guess we'll compare notes after but yeah you'll you'll get that on the on the feed we also have a bonus episode exclusively on the feed also demanded requested by chas that's on dangerous liaisons that should be on the feed right now too that is another attempt to get alex on the on the period piece bandwagon i guess
1: it's got a hell of a white people cast
2: <laughs> yes <laughs> uh as usual you can also find all the uh deleted stuff all the cutting room floor stuff that they make it into uh, our episodes all right get tell you we, we already recorded some uh some stuff that's definitely not going to make it into the <laughs> the regular feed for Wake and Fright. Because, you know, you start talking about drinking and uh, we may not be as wild as those Australians, but uh, we do have some stories. And so those are going to end up on the patron feed uh, on the Cutting Room Floor segment. Uh, also, our pre-recording notes. We have uh, patrons of all tiers have access to our uh, special projects like the, the rock cena maxi series <laughs> and the uh, summer break uh, trilogy uh, mm-hmm. that started with days are confused on the main feed then uh, moved on to the goofy movie on both feeds and then it finished with wet hot american summer on the patron feed good fun stuff
1: you're underselling it julio there's a there's a lot of shit there the things we like it's not just 30 second clips it's not like the Instagram model that you want to see more of and you subscribe to a patron and it's just nothing. We talk about The Rock and John Cena for like 12 hours, not consecutively, <laughs> but like over uh, a five part installment. And depending on how things play out, there's probably going to have to be a post mortem. Somebody
2: else taking the narrative, taking over the narrative.
1: A post mortem, a PM, or in this case, a CM, as it were. A- <laughs> There, yeah, See, uh,
2: I've, I've been trying to stay away from from any information because oh I want to hear it from you.
1: Yeah, so there's still some pieces in motion as to exactly how that's going to play out, but I think eventually, patrons, there's going to be a, a follow up. I, I mean, the Rock and John Cena are doing all right for themselves, but some of the other characters we came into contact with during that. Uh, Jaunt, specifically one Phil Brooks, and also uh, there's uh, some Seamus updates to go. Now Seamus has had, uh, I know he <laughs> he became a sympathetic character for you in that Julio, and you'd be pleased to hear some of the recent happenings with him.
2: Uh, and then, of course, Contrarians After Hours. <music> the spin-off show where we tell you about other things that we watched, that we played, that we listened to, that we that we thought uh, Alex, what are you bringing to Contrarians After Hours this time?
1: An extremely rare discussion of the positives and benefits of digital projection in this current age of film. Oh, uh, wow. It's a big one. Uh, myself and our friends Reed and Kelly went to Terror Tuesday this past week And it was a showing of Friday the 13th Part 3 in 3D. Um, But it was the world premiere of the digital remastering in 3D. It had never been played before anywhere in the world. The guy who runs Terror Tuesday, the way he described it, he worked on the folks at Paramount for quite a while to get them to agree to do a digital remastering of the 3D uh, print of that film. So, be talking about that a little bit of a backstory because I have seen it before in the theater on film, and um, if you've seen that movie, you know what it is. but um, it was a unique experience, and it was it was pretty fucking cool. So I will be talking about yet another movie that's forty years old that I watched in a movie theater recently before I watched I don't know what's what's in the theaters that's hot right now. Avatar
2: not yet. Come on. <laughs>
1: But all right, Friday the 13th, part three, the world premiere of the digital remaster of it that I attended uh, and a full length review on the absolute just I fucking pigged out. I don't know why I was so hungry, but I ate like fucking forty five dollars worth of food during that. So <laughs> anyone who yeah, is worried that I potentially am selling out, that's definitely not the case. It's uh, because the reason it is so good is because it's a remastering of a movie that was originally shot on film. But we'll we'll get into that
2: details um all right well Alex on my end uh I have a movie that I wouldn't recommend to you but I still want to talk to you about Mm -hmm. and I have a movie that I recommend to you I I imagine that you're planning to watch it anyway um so first on the not recommend but let's talk about it side it's uh Dear Evan Hansen which is a movie adaptation of a Broadway musical that I actually saw when they came to Austin and so I was curious about the movie you might have picked it up on your radar because for a while, film Twitter was making fun of the fact that the the main guy they they cast the guy that played the role in Broadway uh, they cast him in the movie, but mm. it's supposed to be a teenager. He's it's a high school kid, and that dude's like late twenties. You know, Hell how he yeah. looks even older. So you can't get away with that these days, uh, not without Twitter just roasting you endlessly. So. Uh, that is just one of the many, many problems uh, the they Evan enhanced adaptation. But I, I watched it. Uh, I'm going to tell you all about it because I I liked the show enough that I was curious uh, to see the movie. And, and then I walked away with some some thoughts uh, about adaptations in general. Um, now, on the more positive side, uh, this, I'm kind of surprised that you haven't watched it yet. I, I kept waiting for you to bring it up, and you haven't. Um, there's a Predator prequel on Hulu. I don't yeah.
1: fucking care.
2: Pray you don't get you like Predator, don't you? Uh
1: don't get it twisted. I love the first Predator. I do not care for like the Predator franchise in the way I do like the first three Terminators or you know, any of the franchises that I'm super into. Uh Okay.
2: I might have mistaken the joy that you seem to derive whenever Predators comes out. Because uh, it's
1: Adrian Brody's like follow up to winning an Oscar and he's like trying to be all serious in this dumb sci-fi. Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. Uh it, what's it is it called like Husk or hunt, is that what it's called? Prey. Prey. I see the ad every fucking time I fire up uh King of the Hill or the League. Uh <laughs> per usual, uh diverse, loaded after hours coming your way, and a very rare opportunity for y'all to hear me say positive things about the current state of film projection.
2: Treasure it. All you have to do is join our patron channel, patron.com slash contrarian prime. Check the tiers. Decide how you want to contribute, how much you want to contribute, and uh, join the Contrarian Supplements. $1,
1: $3, $5, and $10 are our respective tiers. Just a buck, 100 pennies, four quarters, et cetera, et cetera. Get seen on the ground floor. You'll have access to the things we mentioned already. In addition, if you want to throw us more money, then opens up the ability to, to demand we cover movies, be it on the main feed or on our patron exclusives. So to all of our current and existing patrons god bless y'all you know we love y'all and as i like to say we are taking applications for new ones always and forever
0: sit down and eat your grub we am gonna need it we're going hunting with dick and Jump.
1: kangaroo
2: let's go hunting alex yes <laughs> welcome to real talk
1: that's where I want to start Shit's off It's gonna get dark yeah I want to start off with the hunting thing because it's obviously the the darkest and uh for me most upsetting portion of the movie so I'd like to get that out of the way before we talk about like aspects of this movie I really enjoy because you know cards on the table I thought this was a tremendous movie before we get into the upsetting nature of the hunting scenes Julio 97% on Rotten Tomatoes think i saw it had about 60 reviews or so so who who comprised that three percent to say this wasn't good
2: get ready for a potpourri of uh of quotes because we're gonna have we have a uh, two rotten tomatoes rotten quotes then we then we have two letterbox comments and then we're gonna close with chas's yes. very own clip brace yourselves we start with uh tom milney from the financial times who says has some fine photography of the Australian wilds, but also veers into melodrama. Do you think that it veers into melodrama? Like, does it ever go overly sentimental, like over the top? No. (laughs) I didn't think so either. (laughs) Yeah, he really focused on the romance between Jeanette and uh, John Grant. Um,
1: If anything, you could argue it shows restraint considering the levels of intensity it goes to
2: yeah yeah uh next dillis powell from sunday times uk says perhaps it will be argued that its intention is to excite disgust with crudeness to invite us to recognize a general tough goodwill which teaches the visitor to know his own weaknesses maybe myself i find that the film excites disgust period uh were you disgusted alex while watching this movie
1: E yeah, disgust is a really extreme word. What uh, we're going to talk about? It. I really was bummed out watching that hunting scene because of how much I liked the mm-hmm. like this movie like that because it is such an elongated sequence. It's like a god awful sandwich with the best bread you've ever had in your life. Like the two sides of it are <laughs> great. Disgusted? No, no. All
2: right. Well, we'll put a pin on 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 this point because I think that there is. Uh if, you're, if the point of the movie is to, you know, let's say, disgust you, to get this negative reaction, but with a purpose, then, uh, I mean, there may be something to it. And, and maybe it accomplished it. Uh, I guess we'll, we'll discuss. Next, we move over to Letterboxd, where Joe gives Wake and Fright four and a half stars, and he says, scarier than The Hangover, funnier than Straw Dogs. And then Jeff Hanna replies to him, Donald Pleasant's and then the better than sign four times. So Donald Pleasant's better than Ken Jong. I think we can all agree with that. Yes. <laughs> you, you hesitated?
1: Well, and I was going to put the caveat of like... Uh, or the asterisk rather of... And I've defended Ken Jeong on here repeatedly in the wake of Julio's yes. bashing of him. But it's fucking the doc, man.
2: Well, I mean, you can put Loomis in The Hangover... And it works. You put Ken Jeong as Loomis and it doesn't work.
1: Oh, God, that would be so fucking good. You want to (laughs) fuck on me?
2: (laughs) Um, And then finally, uh, Kiko Vega in Letterboxd gives it half a star. And uh, this is in Spanish, so allow me to translate. He says, uh, am I growing older? I don't think that it was necessary to go to a real massacre of kangaroos to make the atmosphere even more unbearable. Fuck, I am between ashamed and angry. And let me tell you that it bothers me because the movie still works even though it's softer than what you would expect after reading the book. But if I couldn't forgive the turtle in *Cannibal Holocaust, I can't forgive this. You've seen Cannibal Holocaust. I haven't. You've kind of like given uh, me.
1: That's the scene where I turned it off the one time I tried to watch it.
2: Yep. So uh, Kiko Vega is with you. Uh, uh, I Maybe he also turned it off.
1: Th- that's what we see here is bad and appalling. Uh, it's nowhere near as disgusting as a word I would use to describe Cannibal Holocaust. And also, as we're going to get to here in a minute, there's an attempt at merit for the, the mm-hmm. hunting scene in this film. Whereas Cannibal Holocaust was a delusional, never was of a director thinking that he was creating something that was going to, I don't know. I I have very strong feelings on that movie, and I think if anyone's really curious, they should watch the Cursed Films feature on it on Shudder as it shows like all the actors and actresses involved just like, pretty much all these years later being like disappointed in themselves that they did that. And the director still acting like it was some big triumph and artistic achievement. And I think people that what's that thing that they say on Twitter, liking the office is not a personality trait. I think there's people in Mm -hmm. horror circles that they think praising cannibal Holocaust is a personality trait. And I've seen it all, man. I've read it all and I've heard it all as far as the defenses for that movie goes. Uh, you know, well, the score is great and the cinematography is interesting. It's like, dude, that's that goes back to that word kind of delusional. And the reason I'm stressing this is because this movie, what we're talking about here today, Wake and Fright, depicts actual animals dying in a very, very real fashion and unsettling fashion. But again, the difference is, as we're going to discuss, the director had a very strong, um, intent whether you agree with the methods or not there's something more defendable and uh there's more room for discussion about that versus just telling an actor they didn't know what they signed up for all right now you're gonna take this hatchet and completely disembowel this live animal you know what i mean yep yep better movie than cannibal holocaust
2: (laughs) well there you go we've said the 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 floor we can only go up from there there, you go from that statement (laughs) you're better than a cannibal holocaust so that means that you've cleared the very very first hurdle
1: (laughs) that's like a fucking uh high jump that i could clear that's where the bar is for cannibal holocaust (laughs) (laughs) my fat ass could get a running start and clear it that's that's the floor
2: all right and then just to lead us into the the full conversation here's chats again with his real talk thoughts.
0: Okay, now, Alex and Julio, you need to stop shitting on Australian cinema. And if you've shit on this film, I'll be most upset because not only is it a classic, but I love it as well. Just like I loved Getting Square and Undead. Look, this is a movie of its time. Like it's not uh, a slick movie. It's not a, you know, well put together necessarily. Like there's a lot of mess in the movie, but I just love how the film is essentially, it's almost like a Western where someone is just broken down by the barbarity of both the landscape, but also the people who live in this remote region. And it's, you know, the broken breaking down of an quote unquote educated man, a teacher by the barbarity that surrounds him. And I love that it's a horror movie with which, you know, it's also scary, but it's also not really about murders or gore or anything about like that. It's just about the deconstruction of one man's psyche. And I love it. All right.
2: The assumption was correct. The assumption was correct, Alex. Chess loved it. <laughs> so now one question has been answered. Now it's it's time to answer the other ones, which is how we feel about it. Now you already said that you're positive on it. You, oh, yeah. You you like it.
1: Um, it's very hypnotic, very mesmerizing. At least my experience
2: was. As I was watching it, I was thinking, if Alex... Because I, I told you, I watched it twice. I, and I was thinking, if Alex can get past the, the kangaroo sequence, he'll probably land on the positive side. But I was also aware that it may be too much. It would turn you off uh, from the movie because I just uh, uploaded your QVR for uh, bad boy, Bobby. And, you know, you were talking about the, the scene with the, with the cat, isn't it?
1: Scenes. There's like multiple with like dead cats and shit. And it's just like,
2: yeah. And so that was fresh in my mind. I mean, we've talked about animal cruelty in movies, uh, fake and real like simulated and real and how that bothers us and uh shit i had to deal with that uh, when i was doing the qvr for tyrannosaur because you know Mm -hmm. two dogs get killed in that movie Mm -hmm. so that was fresh in my mind and i was thinking this this seems like it would be right up uh, alex's alley because Chaz is right it feels like a horror movie uh not at the beginning maybe but by the time that you're done with it, it very much so and uh I'm glad that the, the hunting scene didn't ruin it for you uh, because I also liked it a lot and uh, I also disliked the hunting scene or rather I was very disturbed by the hunting scene and I think that that's that I was meant to be disturbed. Uh, we can we can talk about that more in a little bit but uh, yeah, I was also I came out of it very, very impressed. Um, so uh, I'm also on the positive side. I, I liked it a lot. I think that... Uh, Maybe it, it just dethroned Priscilla. <laughs> That's the best Australian movie we've covered on the show, but we'll see. Um, so, do you want to get into the kangaroos or do we, do we circle around them for a little bit longer?
0: See the way the roo's trying to draw him? It's how he can get back up on his tail, see? Yeah, then he rips his guts out with his hind legs. <laughs>
1: No, I think it's probably best we go ahead and just tackle that head on. Um, Chaz, I'm this is something I'm curious about as a, a countryman. I was doing a bit of research afterwards. And so what is the kangaroo population like now? Because it seems like at the time of this movie when this was made, uh, hunting kangaroos was legal, but um, they were nearing the point of being an endangered species is based on uh, or just endangered uh based on what I read in the research, but it sounds like the population has just grown as such that if I understood what I read that it was illegal at one point to hunt kangaroos, but now due to the growing population, the government permits license that you can hunt and kill kangaroos. So I'm just curious about that. Um so Chaz or any of our Australian listeners, if you have any insight, it'd be appreciated. Now, for the matters of this movie, the hunting sequence we referenced in the first half, it, it it's long, and it's the townsman taking Doc, Dick, and Joe, taking out John to go kangaroo hunting, and it just, it feels bad from the get-go, and it just shows in graphic, unflinching details, not even the word, just, it's just, here it is, look at it, these kangaroos getting shot and dying, and, uh, Based on what I was able to find from this, the... Kangaroo hunting scene contains graphic footage of kangaroos actually being shot. Uh, A title card you see before the credits rolls at the end says, Producers note the hunting scenes depicted in this film were taken during an actual kangaroo hunt by professional licensed hunters. For this reason and because the survival of the Australian kangaroo is seriously threatened, these scenes were shown uncut after consultation with the leading animal welfare organizations in Australia and the United Kingdom. Uh, what is said about the hunt was that it lasted several hours and gradually wore down the filmmakers. According to cinematographer Brian West, the hunters were getting really drunk and they started to miss. It was becoming this orgy of killing and the crew were getting sick of it. Kangaroos hopped about helplessly with gun wounds and trailing intestines. Producer, Jesus Christ. I know, producer George Willoughby fainted after seeing a kangaroo splattered in particularly spectacular fashion. The crew orchestrated a power failure in order to end the hunt. At the 2009 Cannes Classic screening of Wake and Fright, 12 people walked out during the kangaroo hunt. Kotcheff, a vegetarian, has defended his use of hunting in the the hunting footage in the film. Um, and then from IMDB, just kind of reiterates some here. The film features a graphic hunting sequences during which kangaroos are killed by a hunting dog. Many are shot with several shown wounded but still alive, and one even appears to be deliberately run over. Significant parts of this section were genuine footage of an actual hunt. A producer's notes at the start of the closing credits suggested that these disturbingly confronting images were kept uncut as a deliberate statement against licensed hunting of kangaroos, the survival of which, uh, the note claims, was at the time seriously threatened. So, it is not fun. It is not enjoyable. It's is probably something that would keep me from maybe ever watching the movie again. Or if I did, because I've seen this already, just fast forwarding through it because we know what happens. That's Um, what I did. (laughs) Oh yeah. The second time
2: around, I just like, I I skipped forward.
1: Cause there is some good shit in this movie that I'm going to want to revisit. But yeah, that's, that's the way to go because obviously what it leads to also is John, you know, being just uh influenced by in an attempt to he's just going down this dark hole man and he watches these guys killing these kangaroos uh be it with a gun or a knife and he goes up and it's like a fucking baby or something and he just stabs it to death and from a storytelling perspective i understand that part of it mm-hmm. the the part of like making john it's just showing that He's lost his way and he's lost who he is. Um, and then the other part. Okay, there's two parts to it. Number one, one of the reasons it's so difficult to watch is because a kangaroo is a special animal to Americans. I genuinely mean this. When it could, they could be like fucking deer over there. Like you see them or like cows or something like that. Not to say that you know, not trying to minimalize anything, but it's like as an American and just being growing up here and. S- anytime I've seen a kangaroo has been on fucking TV or like a zoo or something to where it like seems like this special creature. So seeing it like multiple kangaroos just getting gunned down is like, it feels wrong on a level that I can't relate to how prevalent they are there or how numerous they are. So there's this weird embedded, like you shouldn't be doing that to begin with internally for me. And again, I understand there's this whole level of hypocrisy because I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan or anything mm. like that. But uh, and then on the side of the director trying to make a statement here, you know, there's documentaries and shit that do the same thing and accomplish things like um, Blackfish that show or the Cove, and you know mm-hmm. that get get this message out. You're not necessarily ready for it, and especially by modern filmmaking standards. You're not ready for a statement to be put in your face so raw like that in a movie. You're like, oh, I'm watching the movie. It's I'm at the, you know, I'm at the cinema and I'm having a good time and I'm watching this fantasy world and then this shit happens. It's very jarring. I can appreciate, you know, based on the limited research we've done, the answer that we've come across. I appreciate and can respect that so much more than just reading, oh, I thought it'd be cool for us to get footage of, you know, actual Hunt. You know what I mean?
2: Right. Yeah, he was trying to actually make a statement. Uh, and I get it. I mean, that's that part I get. The You know, he felt strongly about this, and this was an opportunity, I guess, to work it into a movie and confront audiences, because uh, the way it's placed in the movie is meant to horrify you, and it does a really good job of that. But, you, you know, it's... Is definitely more powerful to be horrified by an actual, actual, you know, footage of an actual hunt versus footage of a staged hunt. Where I think it kind of loses its way is that for all the good intentions, I don't know that it belongs in this movie. Uh, you know, like I don't, I don't think that this movie is a place to make that statement because it's just so removed from the story that the movie's telling. This is a story that of- I
1: agree with. Also, like I think I don't know. Do you agree with? That whole sequence could be removed, and the movie would still be just as impactful.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. it's not—it's not because the the footage is not impactful, but it's just because it's—it has so very little to do with the with the story. You know, I yes, there is that moment that you that you called out where where uh, John Grant actually kills a kangaroo, but you can do that without showing us the rest of the hunt in such mm-hmm. graphic detail, and we get the point. You know, obviously, it wouldn't make the point the extra point, the additional point that the that the director wanted to make, but it makes the point as far as like what the story needed, which is like, okay, another step down the ladder. you <laughs> know he's he's become a brute. He's just m- murdering an innocent animal. Uh, we could get there without everything else that's surrounding it because we're ready by that time, you've already sold us on the type of men that these guys are, and you can, yeah. You can still show us, like, oh well, you know they're they're wild and they're cruel and whatever, without actually having footage of real kangaroos getting gunned down. So that's where I I just don't think that the movie I don't think it was a good decision. I, I think there's the something
1: movie- to be said too about like what you had called out that it doesn't really f- flow. The pacing in that sequence is so much more slow and prodding than everything else. Like everything else in the movie is just like chaos, and like almost to the point of being epileptic in some sequences, you know, with the flashing of everything going on. And then that is just so much lingering and it works to accomplish the goal of the director of like, look at this shit that you're allowing, uh, you know, into the country of Australia and all that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it disrupts the pacing of the movie.
2: Now, when you were watching it, did you know, could you tell that this was,
1: Oh real yeah. Congr- you could tell. Okay. Yeah. Immediately, because it was all, it was the immediate thought was like uh, effects and dummies and stuff were nowhere near advanced enough at that point in time to look that realistic. Even most of the time in movies where animals died around that time, you just saw kind of like the aftermath. Mm -hmm. Think of Halloween, you know, eight years later, where you see a dog's legs kind of flailing. It's like, oh, Michael killed that dog. And this Mm -hmm. is just like, oh, God, that thing just got shot. So. There's a lot of good on this, so we don't want to linger on it, but it, it, you can't talk about this movie without talking about that. So I think my final word on it is I have respect for the filmmaker's intention, uh, and it does a good job of doing what he wanted to in the idea of unflinchingly showing this is what's happening and it shouldn't be allowed there's people that can make the immediate argument, well, it shouldn't be allowed to any animals or anything like that. But Hey, he wanted to make this particular point about the Australian kangaroo mission accomplished from the movie's perspective. It's this weird kind of unnecessary detour that I genuinely mean. I could say if you cut it out of the movie, not much of it would change about my experience overall. It's just kind of a weird, uh, like note, uh, an accompaniment of this movie. And I imagine anyone that you talk to about it, you're not going to be too far into the conversation before this part comes up. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Definitely uh, a sticking point. (laughs) (laughs) You're talking to somebody of a waking fright and you're doing everything you can to avoid bringing up the kangaroos.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, In the same way that like those scenes in Bad Boy Bubby really took me out of what was happening. uh, I still really enjoyed this and we're going to get to a lot of that uh, reason why at the same time, I, anytime you depict any sort of real scenario like this, you don't know, you can't control other people's thought processes or how they feel or how they think. So uh, it's a movie that if I recommended it to someone, I would immediately have to call out, Hey, there's this and this, this movie to be aware of. And then if someone came back to me and was like, I couldn't really get back into the movie after that because of what happened. I I can't argue with that.
2: Final question about this. Would you feel better if it was just, if there were fake kangaroos, if there were dummies?
1: See, the point is, if they were and it lasted as long as it does in the movie, I'd be like, what the fucking, what was the point of that? Like. Yeah.
2: Uh, I mean, you know, you could argue that the the point would still be the same, only that he wouldn't be using footage. But he would still want to show you, hey, this is horrific, you know, what we do to these creatures. I think that there is kind of as a segue into something that I think works in the movie, but it's kind of related to this, because I think that just like you could take the kangaroo sequence out, I think that there's a lot of stuff that, in theory, you know, technically, you could take out and uh, the basic story doesn't change. You just lose Mm -hmm. some of the flavor. But this movie is all about the flavor. (laughs) So you really, I'm happy with everything that's in there because, you know, the plot is very simple. He gets, you know, he loses his money and then he just kind of descends into madness. And, you can take some of the the sequences that, we, that are part of that descent, but in the end, it's just very easy to understand that well, it's just more drinking and more losing control, and then he ends up, you know, uh, killing himself or trying to kill himself.
1: You know, what's wild is like this is a movie. You watch, it, this is my experience. I was watching this and I kept thinking to myself, "Oh, I, this is just like da 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 da," you know. The, uh, but I couldn't think of anything that it was like like completely like i can think of these movies that had you know parallels with the idea of getting like sucked into the local environment and stuff but it just kept taking all these hard lefts, and the characters and it just felt so different that you it's a movie you watch and you feel like oh i've seen this before but when it's over you know you haven't if that makes any sense
2: Mm -hmm. i think particularly (laughs) on this little stretch of uh Contrarian's Adventures. It was, I mean, we kind of brought it up on the video for uh The Lighthouse. Uh, because one of the quotes referenced Wake in Fright, which was, you know, it's just serendipitous. And in one of my notes here is like the descent into madness depicted in this movie works so much better for me than the descent to madness that we saw in the lighthouse. Oh, yeah. And uh they're not, I mean, this one has more of a plot. But not that much. I mean it, it, they they do share that approach, I think of making you feel uh, getting you into the the state of mind of the protagonist rather than walking you through a complex plot, you know and uh, but it works so much better here. Uh, this one has just enough story to to keep me going and it it works because you really start feeling just dirty and. Uh, sullied <laughs> the way that John Grant does as the as the movie goes on.
1: When you think about it in retrospect, like if if I'm trying to explain that scene to you where he's eating like, you know, breakfast at 4 p.m. with Loomis, in my mind now, it seems really gross and grimy. And there's flies and it's sweaty and they're drinking flat beer. But when you're watching the movie, like just happen it it's not like it's blatant. It's just like this continuous. These scenes out of order would look ridiculous, but when you play them like they are, it you just go along with it. And then by the end, you're like, God, this is just so dirty. Like, I just feel gross. It's fascinating. Man, Donald Pleasance uh, joke about a lot and also like Reed and I have always called him the doc. Like it's just kind of a joke we have. (laughs) So I had no idea that was his character's name in this. So I let out like a guttural howl when they kept referring to him as the doc. (laughs) They don't make him like they used to. And that's his whole thing in Halloween is kind of part of the joke is he's just like, I'm here, pay me. What? Oh, the evil's here. The evil's gone. (laughs) Like, he's great. But when you watch him and shit like this and some of his other work that he did, and he's got, he's one of those guys that just made like a billion movies. But God, dude, that monologue he has when they wake up after that night of drinking, where he's just talking about sex and like, if she was a man, she'd be in prison for rape. It's just brilliant. Like, the things he's saying are obviously like, holy shit. This is upsetting but his delivery and his just manic facial expressions and that insane smile that he kind of weaves in and out of i think every one of this movie serves their purpose and i think especially for a guy who only had three films gary bond is very impressive but loomis man is just like on another level his even the open like the introduction scene to him that line he had oh, hold on i gotta pull it back up because i fucking bookmarked it uh, discontent is the luxury of the well-to-do. And he's just saying that while he's sipping this beer and then this beer has gone warm.
2: <laughs> and then he smiles.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any th- Anytime he was on screen, I was just, it was a magnet. And that's been, as an adult, watching more movies he did. I mentioned Eye of the Devil earlier. I like that one. Because I'm, I'm always going to associate him with Halloween. But seeing how talented of an actor he actually was, And something like this that is just so radically different from the Dr. Loomis character. It's just wild, man. I I mean, I don't know if I'm overhyping it or something. What did you think about Donald Pleasance in this?
2: He was great. And like I said, in the first corner, I have less experience with him, uh, outside of Halloween. So for me, it was just a new dimension of him as an actor, because obviously this is very different from Dr. Loomis. Uh, and he nails it he's creepy and greasy and shady uh and yet he has those moments where he actually seems to care for for John Grant and and i buy it uh, it's kind of a i don't know if see if you want to talk about overhyping it uh, i don't know if calling it a fearless performance is overhyping it <laughs> because that instantly gives you you know Uh, that puts you in the expectations maybe way too high. But in a way it is uh, just for me, you know, because I, having seen him only in in the Halloween franchise, this is so different and he's just so out there. There's zero. I think
1: fearless is a fine word too, because like there's numerous scenes where he's half dressed and, you know, that's what I was about
2: to say. It's like no vanity.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm, Yeah. He's just very vulnerable. And I think that leads into the homosexual scene
2: oh yeah that's the a other, weird way of saying it the other controversial talking point
1: <laughs> yeah i don't know why i called it the homosexual scene but uh, <laughs> uh that's the way like uh, a reviewer at fuck what's one of the dumb right wing what's the, there's that fucking website that they released gina carano's movies through now no, i can't Bly remember it's, it's something like that ben shapiro's website i can't remember it would have been a good joke if i cared enough to memorize <laughs> the name of that but gay sex scene where it's implied that Loomis and John have a drunken night of passion together uh, because of the, I guess, awkwardness or just kind of shock value. It's not even shock value. Cause again, it is implied. And when we talked about this in the first half, I love that. Like everything else in the movies uh, shown to you in such detail. And then this happens and you, you don't see it and it's, you just kind of have to, understand what happened i guess
2: i didn't catch by the way that he was wearing a dress until the second time i watched it
1: i don't know if i'm supposed to laugh at that or not but i did just the idea of like
2: well there's a lot of just i i think really dark comedy throughout the entire movie so. okay
1: i i got the hint of that too and I, I didn't know if i was being too cynical or callous but like this <laughs> is the way he gets up and he's like don't, he tells him not to forget something. He's like, don't. And he's, it's just, yeah, and it's just Donald Pleasant's in a dress like, oh, that was a wild night, wasn't it? And John's <laughs> obviously like traumatized by what happened.
0: You want some food before you go? No. I got a drink.
1: All right. So how much of it were you being sincere about that you think it could come off as there could be a read of homophobia to it?
2: well i I think that people could make that argument, and I don't think that they'll be entirely wrong. I mean, you can read it that way, but I much like with the the shame reading, you know the I think that I, I keep cutting
1: f- you off, but like with shame, I know it annoys you when I bring it up, so I just try to shoehorn it in whenever I can <laughs> uh,
2: the thing is, and this would probably be done differently today as opposed to in nineteen seventy one but the way I rationalized it, the way I chose to read it, was as in: it's not that he has sex with a man, and that's just the, you know the worst thing that he could do that could have happened to him or whatever. It's just that he has sex with this specific person, regardless of gender. Donald Pleasance in this movie is this dark mirror image of him. He's everything that he's not, everything that he doesn't want to be. Right? He's a guy that has settled in this in this town and is proud of it and he's crass and he's gross and he everything he says seems to go against his values about against Grant's values and so for Grant to get so drunk and lose control to end up being intimate with this person again it could be man or woman i think that that's what really does it now obviously uh, especially back in the 70s i think that there is i mean it, there has to be an, that element of transgression right i mean he is at least he presents himself as a uh, heterosexual man and so there is that that added uh, thing of well I just had a a gay experience and I'm supposed to be straight so I mean it's not like like the fact that it's a a man doesn't play a part in it but I don't think that that's all of it to where I would find it kind of a uh, poor taste I I find it more like more than anything I find it unfortunate because an easy read of it could go like oh they're just portraying Sex between men as this really horrible thing that could happen to you, but I just see it as no. They're portraying it as sex with the doc in this movie is you know it represents something that is very much what our protagonist doesn't want. (laughs) And just once he has sex with him, it's like well he can't really say that he's not like him, you know? They're like more alike than 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 he would like. It's still thorny and obviously. Kind of like we always will go this, you know, if you're a gay man and you find this scene offensive, I, I mean, who am I to say <laughs> that they're yeah. wrong? It's like, obviously, yeah, but that's like
1: every review I read of Blue is Warmest Color that just like castigates it for, you know, if you're a patron or if you want to become one, go all the way back. Our first episode is an in-depth discussion of that film, uh, but, you know, for the things we're talking about, the misportrayals of homosexuality and things like that. And that's my response every time. It's like, dog, I'd, I am in no position to tell you you are wrong for thinking that. that, that This is just kind of how I interpret it and this is what it means to me. So I think that's something that's kind of lost with a lot of um, movie critique is the idea of being overwhelmingly open to someone else's perspective who, ha- who lives a different life than you. It's like, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong for feeling that way because you're more qualified to comment than I am. I still, this is what I think, that type of thing. It's like the reassurance to John that he's a man of no self-control and a man of just no, um, he's no better than these people that he thinks are stupid. I think that's what you were trying to say. Yep. These people that he hates and judges so much for being, you know, small town losers, he's He's just the same as them. Bears hungry. He'll eat that type (laughs) of thing. Yep. Uh, Like you said, it's prickly subjects, but like everything else in this is just, it's funny too. the whole alcohol thing in the movie is like, everything's washed in beer. It still does that. There's some, you know, pieces of film and television that go out of the way to establish like alcohol is the problem. And what I really enjoy about this is that it's the idea of it's just these people have no self-restraint. And it's a movie of like temptation and excess. And it's like sex isn't bad. Alcohol is not bad. But when you can't control your desires and you let them fuel that and you let that control you. gambling's not bad. Same thing. It's the people that are bad. <laughs> and I find that to be just so fascinating and for a movie that's 50 years old I would use the word refreshing to say to see that as it seems like so much focuses today on it's not a person's fault it's the external factors where it's this it's like no you're the fuck up these other things around you they're great if you know how to do it and how to handle it
2: gambling doesn't ruin people people ruin people
1: exactly (laughs) You know, it's harder Um, to gamble than it is to get a gun. That's the sad part about it. (laughs) And that's the one, like, I could see some nuts saying, well, it's the same thing with guns, man. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. And it's like, all right, that argument goes about as far as I could fucking throw you. But um, in this case, vices of excess don't define the person. It's the way the person goes about that that defines them. And I find that to be very interesting.
2: So that's, oh, again, another, you're, you're full of good segues tonight, Alex, because uh, <laughs> that's a good lead way into talking about uh, John Grant himself, uh, Gary Bond, who, as much as I love Donal Pleasance in this movie, I think the MVP is Gary Bond. I He's very good. He is, in I think the part of it is just that it's a blank slate, right? So I'm just letting this guy come in and just show me what he's got, and... It's not a showy part, at least most of the time. He's just kind of slowly taking things in. But I think he nails, like, all the micro reactions. Like, one of my favorite moments is when uh, the first time he gambles, and he Mm places a bet, and then he wins. But everybody rushes to collect the money, and he gets left behind. And he has this reaction of, like, oh, of course you know, now somebody's going to take my money. So th- this is exactly what I thought, you know, like this is chaotic and people, that, this is how people lose the money and he's about to walk away. And then he hears somebody calling for the guy with the white jacket and he realizes that they're calling for him. Mm-hmm. And then a dude finds him and gives him his earnings and just the, the change in his expression, because suddenly he's like, Oh shit, this works. And then they pull him over and you know how he, you see him slowly get into the gambling. I mean, that whole sequence is, uh, I mean, it's one of many, but I just I found him really, really good at just portraying this uh, this outsider that gets wrapped into this web and just, you know, you buy his his fall from grace, just like tumble after tumble. I was I was really happy with it and half serious in Contreras Corner uh, So tell me how you feel about this. Like, how do you feel about the, the, that concept of uh, uh, aggressive hospitality, you know, the idea of like this town? on the surface, at least, you know, and, and at first, they're just really nice. And he kind of comes across as an asshole because, well, you know, he just keeps rolling his eyes at these townies that are just like bending over backwards to giving drinks and and food and just being hospitable. But I was kind of like relating to it. <laughs> that makes me a bad person. It was like, I don't want to drink with anybody, you know? How are you feeling during the first half of the movie? Before things get really dark, I mean, there's a point in the movie where there's a very clear division. And you're like, all right, now he's hanging out with bad people. Nothing good is going to come out of this. But at first, when he's hanging out with the sheriff, and uh, even when he's hanging out with uh, uh, Tim you know mm-hmm. they seem like they're just harmless like they're being friendly and uh maybe he just doesn't want to hang out with them but that doesn't mean that they're bad people but how were how you feeling throughout this entire thing where like were you were you like did you have a moment where you turned on the townies were you always against the townies were you always against john grant did you always find him did you find him like kind of as an asshole like a that, that felt that he was better than everybody else
1: i guess somewhere in the middle there's a there's a big part of me that has no interest in being being around people, mingling with people, talking to people. Uh, as Tommy Lee Jones said in, I think it's Men in Black, where he said, "A person is smart, people are dumb." Generally speaking, I don't really care for people, <laughs> so I think that's I can relate to that part of it. At the same time, I have enough couth. And common decency to be polite Mm -hmm. in certain situations. But, you know, I'm not going to go out of my way to be like, oh, I don't want to talk to you. Get away from me or like something like that. At the same time, I don't really make myself available to that. I think that was kind of my thing with them. It's like, then quit going out in fucking public places if you don't want to be bothered. (laughs) When I'm on vacation, Especially in places I don't, you know, regularly go to or completely different parts of the country. Like when I was in Chicago, I socialized with like bartenders or people sitting next to me at the bars that I went to. They were not like packed like the one in this movie, but just kind of more kind of soaking up local culture, that type of thing. And, you know, if you're nice enough, people buy you a round of beer, but when I'm not in the mood to be around people, which is, it, that's all the time here, I do not like being around people in Austin, and I don't like the way people treat others in Austin. So I don't go out. I buy beer, and I sit at home, and I play video games, and I watch movies. Uh, I don't know if a psychiatrist would say that's the most healthy thing mentally, but that was kind of where I rolled my eyes at his character, and it made him come off as such like a pompous douchebag Is like... Oh, I hate people, so I'm gonna to go to these really crowded bars and try to like drink alone. <laughs> Here you are. I slung your change to the steward. Told him it was yours. Do you a bit of good when you come back again?
2: That's what I like about this movie, because um, I could see both both sides of it. I understood his annoyance without ever thinking that somebody like Jock or, or Tim were bad people. You know, I actually thought that they were they were really nice. Jock buys him beers, takes him to eat. And uh, it's the same thing with, like, Tim, you know? He yeah. buys him beers, invites him over, knows that he's broke, so he's like, don't worry about it, you know, we'll take care of you here. I mean, so I don't think that they're bad for being that way. But I also understand his annoyance at just that that kind of a social pressure of, like, well, somebody's just being really nice to you when all you want to do is, like, be left alone. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I I like that aspect of his character. I I think that I am less sure of uh where we end. You know, because you set him up as this kind of person, and then he goes on this journey where I guess he, in his mind at least, he gets to see the worst of himself. He sees like what's the the worst that can happen to him. You know, when he drinks too much and just loses control and whatever, and he can't face it, so he tries to kill himself, and then by luck, basically, he doesn't succeed, and then. He just goes back, and it's he can just leave everything behind. Like, what happens in Yabba, it stays in Yabba. He goes back to his old <laughs> job, and uh, we presume that, well, his girlfriend's still in Sydney, and he'll just see her, you know, next time.
1: Also, what the fuck was up with the class he taught? They range from, like, five years old to 16.
2: <laughs> I think one of the guys has to be his TA. There, there's yeah. a guy sitting at the back that is much older than everybody else. But it's probably, like, the one classroom in that town, so... But anyway, yeah, true. I was a little uh not confused, but just that very th- the end, right? Like I understand like the irony of it. Just the uh, oh well, you know, he ended up where he started. And uh the one major change is that he takes that beer from that guy at the end. The, the guy in the train on the train back offers him a beer and he takes it. So yeah. what are you telling me, right? That his experience in Yaba, it that I don't know, six weeks of hell that he spent in, in Yaba, have turned him into a kind of man that can appreciate having a beer with a stranger, whereas he wasn't that before. Is that what the movie's saying? I, mean, I don't know. How, how do you read the ending?
1: Um, that he's just kind of back to where he started from.
2: But now he drinks with people.
1: <laughs> yeah, it'd be amazing if that was his takeaway. It's okay <laughs> if I drink, just as long as I'm with people.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would be different if, if the movie... If it was the opposite, like that he, we start the movie and he takes the beer from somebody that's offering it to him on the train to Yaba. he
1: declines it. Yeah, on the, the way
2: back, he declines it because it's like he's learned that he he shouldn't drink with strangers. Like that, I would instantly grasp. But I'm like, okay, well, I, I get what you're saying. But the other way, it's a little muddled. I mean, I don't care. The, the whole point of this movie, at least for me, is what happens when he's in Yaba. And the beginning and the end, it's just kind of, you know, prologue and epilogue, but it's not the meat of it. What's really important is how he feels when he's in Yaba and how that makes me feel, which is a parallel madness. Great movie.
1: All right. To kind of bring this home here, I did say there's an interesting journey. This film, the movie actually went on, uh, for many years, the only known print of wake and fright found in Dublin was considered of insufficient quality for transfer to DVD or videotape for commercial release. Remember standards when we cared about that type of shit? Uh, In response to this situation, Wake and Fright's editor, Anthony Buckley, began to search in 1994 for a better preserved copy of the film in an uncut state. Eight years later, in Pittsburgh, Buckley found the negatives of Wake and Fright in a shipping container labeled for destruction. By September of 2004, a further 263 cans, several of which contained the original camera negative, were recovered from the vaults and allowed for a full digital restoration. That's such a crazy story.
2: How do you lose a movie? <laughs> Who was in charge of that?
1: Well, that's the thing, too. It's not like, that's just it. It got lost. You know, I always reference Freaks, and Freaks is not the only one. There's uh, probably hundreds of movies that you can only read about what they were about, because back in those days, they just like, oh, no one liked it. Throw it in the furnace. <laughs> but this is like, do you know the the amount of space that fucking... <laughs> What is that? 260 plus 60. So uh, 320 cans of film would occupy. That would fill up my house.
2: That's like half a boyhood.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Bravo, sir. For any of y'all that don't know, a can of film weighs fucking, I don't know, 30 or 40 pounds and is probably a foot and a half by a foot. No, probably two feet by a foot. And they're fucking two feet tall. So the idea that three hundred of those just vanished. <laughs> How many people weren't doing their job correctly for that to happen? I
2: know. The guy in charge was like, I swear they were there last night. <laughs> I don't know what happened.
1: <laughs> I, I was watching Wake and Fright and I dozed off. I'm sorry. A Yabba man. You're the Yabba man, Jock. The Bond and Man. <laughs> excellent stuff. Uh, I did read that they, the filmmaker was impressed with Donald Pleasant's Australian accent. And with all due respect to that and <laughs> our Australian listeners, he was just fucking Donald Pleasant in this. <laughs> but that's a good thing. As discussed. I ended up going four stars on Letterbox for this. I'm going to settle with a letter grade of B+. plus. I think it's excellent. Excellent. There's parts of this I really want to revisit. If I ever do, it's just going to be a matter of fast-forwarding through that hunting scene. But again, while acknowledging that it, it attempted to accomplish something, it's just it's not an enjoyable experience, and it's not supposed to be watching it, but it's not one that I'd really need to see again. But B+, excellent movie. Chaz, tremendous pick. Thank you.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with four stars as well. That's that's where I land. I it's, it's a really strong four stars. It is a movie that I will speak of positively. From here on out, and I, it will definitely come to mind when we're talking of Australian cinema, uh, which I think was part of a uh, Chaz's purpose uh, in picking it. And that's okay. That's something that we didn't quite mention, but I, uh, what's the right way of putting it? Like, okay, so this feels Australian in a way that something like uh "Without Saying Goodbye" didn't feel Peruvian necessarily. You know what I mean? <laughs> I could feel and not because I believe that, oh, this represents Australia in general, but just because this felt very much authentic to a place. I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. You know, I'm assuming that Australia also agrees because that's why they they have it as a, uh, you know, a revered film, but it felt good. It felt Australian. It didn't feel derivative, even though, like you said, there are things where, you know, I could recognize elements. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I know this story or I think I know this story. But that was good. I I like that. Okay, well now I have one more piece of the puzzle when it comes to Australian cinema. I can just go like, yeah, Wake and Fright. That's that's their Singham, not quite. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, Julio. I suppose it's time to get on out of here. Uh, what is on deck next?
2: Coming up next on the Contrarians, this is uh, what we shall call a tale of two psychos. <laughs> we are are doing something something new. We're we're going where no podcast has gone before. But we're going to tackle the original Psycho, uh, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, which is a fresh movie. We're going to give it the contrarian treatment. But also, we're going to watch and talk and compare and contrast with the Psycho remake from Gus Van Sant, starring Vince Vaughn back when uh, you know they were trying to sell him to us as as a jack-of-all-trades, not just a comedian. Uh As if that wasn't enough of an ambitious undertaking, we are going to have the guys from Franchise Killer back to help us out. So it might be, I don't know. I mean, last time there was three of them. I don't know how many are coming this time, but there'll be a lot of voices pitching in, uh, which is why, you know, two movies that, that should give us plenty of meat to chew on. So that's coming up next. Psycho, the original, Psycho, the remake with Franchise Killer. Also, right now, I think on your feeds, there should be my my guest spot on the Film Busters podcast where we talked about the Paul Dano movie, his directorial debut. He's not in the movie. He just wrote and directed it. Wildlife, starring Jay Gyllenhaal, Carey Mulligan, and Ed Oxenbolt. Uh, really good movie. Uh, we had a blast talking about it. Paul Dano wrote it with Zoe San actually. Do you know that there are a couple, Alex? Paul Dano and Zoe San. I do not. Yeah, they are. And uh, I have the criteria and I was going through the through the supplements and there's interviews with them and they were talking about their process, uh, you know, writing the screenplays. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but anyway, it's a good movie an even better conversation, uh, I think. <laughs> uh, so check out the Filmbusters podcast. And if you haven't checked out my appearance on the Pined podcast, you should, because uh, John and I talked about Batman Returns and Alex anything that i haven't told you about my feelings for batman returns that's it's out there uh now on a different podcast i know that you <laughs> watch it recently and and gained new appreciation for it so that's it that's the future uh get us out of here
1: looking forward to all of that but to go ahead and close us out uh, we'll move into perennial plugs start off by giving a thanks to the Festive Years who provide our opening and closing tracks they kick us off with Last Stand take us home with Summer of 99 be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs
2: our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Ruth he he's the man behind our logo and all the graphics on our uh, Patreon page, our merch page, our web page, uh, if it looks like a tomato that's looking at itself in the mirror uh, Hans probably drew it And if you like it, you should let him know. Just reach out to him on Twitter at Mildemonios. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S. Or you can email him at Mildemonios at Hotmail.com. Or you can check out his website, uh, Mildemonios.pe, where uh, you can see his other work. He's a podcaster. He has two podcasts. Nación Combi, which is about proving career affairs, and Marginal, which is about economy. And he's also a writer. He's written a whole bunch of novels. The most recent one, Historia del Perú, is a fake Peruvian history book and I wrote a chapter there. Uh, check it out if you can. Hans, thank you for all your support.
1: And thank you to the effort and support of Miss Zoe Perez. Our social medias are uh, facebook.com slash Prime, and on Instagram at Prime. Give us a follow uh, if you haven't already on those platforms. Uh, Zoe puts together uh, videos previewing upcoming episodes, uh, audio clips for current episodes that are out, Pictures, previews, interactive graphics on our Instagram account, all that kind of stuff. Makes it look real good, real profesh. Zoe, we appreciate the work you do for us. And once again and always, we appreciate you, listening public, our audience, for tuning in for yet another episode. But that is going to do it for The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.
0: And I just want you to know I'm really glad you're following